Hey Ray. Hey man. How's it going? Not too bad. It's been a while. It has been a while. Mm. We've been off the air for the past three weeks, which feels like a long time for us. I don't yeah. know if our listeners feel the same way. What's been going on, Ray? The world seems to be falling apart, man. There's a lot going on in the world right now. It does look like it. How does it make you feel? Angry, but also... I've been able to channel my politics onto something and just project my fantasies onto it. Yeah, and I okay. think that's been sort of a coping mechanism for me, at least. Yeah. Like, with the, how the world is. Like, seeing the statues being thrown of those racist colonizers mm-hmm. have just personally given me a lot of vindication. Yeah, like seeing the, the cops cry over not getting their McDonald's meals. Dude, it's just been beautiful. It's been really beautiful. I, I would say instead of making me feel angry... The events of the last few weeks have made me feel very energized and hopeful. Mm. Because I think the default way of going about things tends to make me more angry. And this deviation we've taken from the default has made me really, really hopeful. I didn't really believe it could happen. I think I've always been very cynical of our generation. And by Mm. our generation, I mean the millennials and the Zoomers. um, Of our capability of mobilizing Mm -hmm. and getting shit done. Because we've always been the snowflakes, right? We've always been afraid of violence and all that. That's what the right uh, tell us, at least. But I think with BLM and with uh, the mobilization that has followed, our generation really has stepped up. It has been our generation leading the fight. Our generation is standing up to the status quo and saying, enough of your bullshit. And like we'll be heard. And that's really beautiful. And the fact that we have shown an appetite for mobilization is mm. gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, hope that I didn't have uh, before. Um, at least like uh, three weeks ago when we were doing the cops episode, I was definitely a lot more um, cynical. Yeah, I totally thought it was all going to fizzle out very quickly. Um, but you're totally right. The the fact that we still have the ability to mobilize, even in this the most I'd say comfortable period of capitalism, where we all have YouTube and for the most part everyone's got food on the table. Yeah, you know we've got the bread and circuses. Everyone, if you, need, if you want to ignore it, you can totally ignore it in the world that we live in today. And yeah. despite that, people are actively on the streets doing good. I find that so beautiful. Yeah, and there's been a lot of talk about the social media activism, right? Yeah. Like the posting the black squares or using the hashtags. And yeah, just yeah, yeah. Talking about it in general. And people have been calling out on them. Like saying that it's just performative activism and like it's it's bullshit. Although I I do have my reservations against it, but I think it's quite conducive for our cause that people are talking about it. Yeah. In a way that Instagram influencers are thinking about race, or at least pretending to think about race. At least they're pretending. At yeah. least it's adding to the discourse. Norms are somewhat. changing. As like, long as one person looks at one of those resource lists of someone's sharing on their Insta story. Yeah. It's something. It's a little thing, but it's something. Or even by the act of doing, like, pressing the share button, yep. you're projecting the image, you're projecting your values by saying, oh, I am not a racist and fuck, race, fuck racism. Yeah. People are saying ACAB. Like, even yeah, the true. liberals are saying even ACAB. Even the liberals are saying ACAB. Like, we're at the cusp of de- defunding the police, or at least uh, people are thinking yeah, of alternatives. Yeah. And there are places that are being defunded all throughout the states. I don't know about anywhere else in the world. Yeah. But all throughout the states, there are areas where the police are being defunded. And, I mean, these are really wonderful things. And, like, Chaz has come up, right? Chaz has come up. The Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone in Seattle, in Seattle. Washington, in the U.S. Uh, for those who don't know about it, it's essentially a group of protesters in Seattle who took up the Capitol Hill area um, in the middle of the city. Yeah, and about six blocks, uh, six or seven blocks, I think. At the heart of Seattle. Yeah. Um, and it's just like they've established their own quote-unquote autonomous zone. Yeah. And what that means is that... They're free from the state. They are self-determining. That's what autonomous is. That's what autonomous means. Um, they have their resources. They choose how to, how to do it. So, like, do you think this is it, Mu? Is this the revolution? Oh, well, before we answer that question, I want to say welcome to the Azad Project, episode four. I'm Mu. I'm Rayan. And uh, today we're going to ask the question, is this a revolution? But before we do that, do we need a revolution? It's- What's wrong with just the way that we're meant to do things in our normal society? I think it's scary to think about a revolution. Yeah. Because when we think about revolution, we think the French Revolution, the Reign of Terror, you know, the guillotines yes. and all that. Um, and it is terrifying. And there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of, like, uneasiness. And the status quo just changes. So if you have a comforting lifestyle, you probably wouldn't 
want that. And I can empathize with that. But I think what we can agree on, at least people, uh, we hope that our uh, listeners can agree on, is like the capitalist system that we have right now isn't working. No. That like even the most ignorant people can acknowledge that. Yeah. If you don't see it that way because it is working for you, a system that works just for you is not working. You don't have empathy. Unless, yeah. unless you're Ben Shapiro or something. Yeah, yeah, Like, if you're a Ben Shapiro bro, I don't know, number one, why you're listening to our podcast. I mean, if you are, welcome. welcome. Hopefully you learned something along the way. Hello, Ben Shapiro stands. So, I think the fundamental agreement that we have, I think, leftists and liberals, um, is that the current system as it exists is not working. Now, there's disagreements as to, like, what the foundations are that are causing these issues. Yeah. So a leftist will say capitalism inherently is a broken system. A liberal will say Trump's in office. Trump's in office or it's not capitalism, it's crony capitalism or it's greed or it's American capitalism. Yeah. It's working fine in the, uh, the, Nor- the Nordic, Nordic countries model. or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah, okay, fine. If you want to if you want to if you believe that, believe that, I guess. And but hopefully even, we can educate like, you away from it. Even that critique starts with the acceptance that something's wrong. Something is inherently wrong. And I think that's where the question of change comes. Yeah. Right? Like, if you acknowledge that there's something wrong with the system and, like, you want to change that, how do we go about doing that? Yeah, okay. And, like, I think the obvious, the liberal route to be taking and the way, the, like, we're supposed to be doing that is through elections. Like, yeah. demo- we live in liberal democracies. Yeah, we'd hope that the checks and balances um, work out. Uh, democracy comes in, and what the and the people, the people get to decide. The people get to decide. decide the direction of the country. The people get to be free. We're free here. Yeah, that's the main narrative. That's the narrative. That's the vision. But that's just fundamental. It just doesn't work. Yeah, it's just wrong. Under capitalism, you choose to have neither economic freedom. You need to rely on a job. You need to rely on work. You have to rely on a paycheck to paycheck, and we don't have political freedom either. Because we don't get... Our individual votes have very little impact on the We have no agency. Change. Even if it... And when I say our individual votes have no impact, I don't even mean in terms of determining who the leader is going to be. Because, like, sure, we can all collectively vote Greens or vote Labour or whatever and put a new leader in. What I mean is our options are always the exact same. Um, there's no real tangible difference when it comes to changing the capitalist system between the Labour Party and the Liberal Party and even the Greens Party. There's no difference between the Democrats and Republicans, even less of a difference between and the Democrats and Republicans. And then you couple that in with the systematic flaws of lobbying and yeah. how money gets you an unfair advantage in politics. And then you have gerrymandering yeah. and like you have a Supreme Court which will favor uh, Trump over Biden any day. Yep. Um, there's just so many systematic issues that are inherently embedded within the system. We talked about cops in our last episode yeah. and we covered a bit of that, that these issues are essential to the system. And the only way we can transition beyond that, the only way we can end police brutality, that even racism to a certain extent, is through a systematic change. Yes. A systematic change cannot exist by means within the system. Exactly. Like, we can't vote our way out of capitalism. Uh, I think a lot of people don't quite understand that because we had Bernie Sanders run for office. Uh, and there was a moment of time where people believed, like, yeah, yeah we'll vote Bernie in and Bernie will socialize America. Um, but that was never going to happen. That was never going to happen. Even if, even in the world where Bernie Sanders is elected into office and AOC is the the head of the House the next uh, or the Senate, Pelosi. yeah, if even if we leftified the entire U.S. Senate, um, it would not. You wouldn't be able to effectively get rid of capitalism. It would have to come from some outside force. Yeah. So like the system can never change or transform from the forces that enable it yeah. or the forces that it uses to legitimize itself, right? Yeah. That's like just strict empirical theoretical facts. So if we can't do it within the system, what does it mean to get change from outside the system? So in strict revolutionary terms, that's mm-hmm. where the discussion begins. Yeah. Because like the conversation about a revolution begins with the need for a revolution. And that need comes, comes from the fact that you can't change a system using reform. that's just not going to happen. What about the middle ground, peaceful protest? See, the thing with peaceful protests is that you're always, it's very Gandhian in the Mm -hmm. sense that they're like, you're expecting that the ruling class is going to take pity on you Mm -hmm. and like are going to be swayed by your emotional appeals to justice. Yeah. And they're going to give you what you want. That's just super naive. That's not how it has ever worked. That's true. The system, the, 
class that has been exploiting you has no reason to stop exploiting you un until or unless you incentivize it to do so. There must be some disruption. It, it cannot be, be just performance. Because we took part in a protest the other week, the um, BLM protest here in Melbourne for indigenous uh, rights. And it was a really beautiful evening. I thought I- It was I, very educational. I, I, there was a lot of really wonderful speakers. It was great seeing all the people out on the streets Mm -hmm. um, There's just well, like fifty thousand people, or something like that. Yeah, showed up. It was really beautiful. The solidarity was really nice. It was really nice. It was really real. It was good to see why people know their place. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's not for me to determine if it was a success, successful protest or not, because it wasn't for me. I was an ally there. Yeah. But in terms of my political theory, what do I believe it achieved? Yeah, as analysts, I don't believe it achieved very much, and I think that's because. However you felt about the movement the day before the protest is how you would have felt about it the day after the protest. If you did not care about the movement, the fact that the protest happened would not make you care about it anymore. It's not incentivizing any additional people to mobilize. And even then, once you've had all those people mobilized, there should be some disrupt disruption out of it. There should be some, you know, reclamation of the land that is claimed to be owned, right? Like, let's tear down a statue together while we're all here and we can all protect each other. Something like that. There needs to be some form of actual physical disruption of, of, the, of the public system, of the public state. Uh, otherwise, all you are doing is performing. Like more than performing, you're appealing. Yeah. You're appealing that the powerful and the status quo just grant you like what you want. What like, you just want. Just meet your demands. And that's just like, I mean, it's a little naive. Um, and that goes for protests everywhere. Everywhere. E Extension Rebellion as well. Yeah. Um, for the climate, uh, the anti-climate change uh, protests. The women's were... marches in the U.S. after Trump was elected. Yeah. Um, so like all these, these are really great. Um, all these protests are great because they're mobilizing people. Yeah. But channeling the energy in a way which would actually amount to change. I think that we need to be constantly um, asking ourselves if the actions that we're taking... Um, are actually going to amount to change. And this goes for even when we're posting statuses online or yep. like sharing something. Like it's, we have to have an action-oriented and an outcome-oriented yes, yes. Um, understanding. And that's why I think revolution is particularly relevant because it's essentially a radical um, solution. And what yep. radical means, quite literally, is that you're willing to identify the problem at its core mm. and you're willing to change that core. Uh, you're gonna shake. You're willing to shake up the foundations and rebuild from that foundation. Yeah, and I just think that's like. I mean, if we had the means to do so, if we had the means to start from scratch and rebuild a society. Yeah. Why would we not want to do that? Hundred percent. Why would we want to like? Why would we want the current exploitative structures to continue and keep on exploiting? If we didn't need to. Yeah. I mean, I think with that understanding, I think like one of the, the big things about being a leftist is you understand it is entirely possible to mobilize enough people to overtake areas of territory from the state and to establish a new social order. Like these are things that are completely capable, like that humans are capable of doing. It's just the right events and the right moments need to occur to trigger all these things into occurring. But it's never an impossibility. I think that's why a lot of people end up just being incremental reformists. Yeah. Because they just cannot envision the fact that we are entirely capable as humans of taking over and reestablishing a new order. Like historically, revolutions have been the only thing that has like progressed a period from another. Yeah. Like, right. And by re revolution in this sense, like if you like look at the definition of a revolution it's essentially a change in the power structure of society mm -hmm. right and like there are different uh, definitions to it of course but fundamentally it essentially means that the ruling elite wouldn't who existed in the status quo after revolution that wouldn't be the case mm -hmm. anymore and like so with that as our understanding you can like if that is the goal of a revolution and that that is to be accepted, we can go about enacting a revolution in so many different ways. Yes. It just doesn't have to be guillotines and pitchforks. Yep. Right? It can be social revolutions, it can be economic revolutions, technological revolutions. Yep. There's a lot of different flavors of it. I think that's one thing that's an issue with like with people who haven't read the the theory or haven't been kind of immersed in the theory of it. Because we're political students, we yeah. live in political theory. Um, but for a person who has actual like skills and value, um, <laughs> who don't have the time to just sit around in political theory all day, 
you there's not a lot of nuance in the images of revolution or anarchy and these images just show up in your head like fire yeah. and chaos and disorder and hurts just, and those are all elements i think that will be apparent in but the, the demonization of, of these things are yeah. all like they're you're buying into propaganda to yeah. a certain extent because that's like a very Hobbesian understanding of how society is like yeah. you know and what i mean by that is that you think that we're purely chaotic that in his, there's some chaos within the human spirit yeah right and i fundamentally don't believe in that no like i think humans are more of a lot more social and a lot lot more understanding of each other yeah um then like that perspective makes it out to be and i think given the right conditions we can be more cooperative humans yeah. are organizers We've always organized ourselves because we understand that's the best way of going about We've society. We've organized ourselves for good and for bad. Yeah. And if you want to even go to the whole naturalistic argument, like, life is about organization. It's about organizing yourself in the most effective ways that everyone can work with each other. And that's why the cells came together. And that's why our bodies exist with all the organs that we have. Yeah. Because effectively, life and chaos cannot exist. But life exists to organize. Um, so, yeah, I completely reject the notion that humans are nasty and evil and chaotic. Um, and I think, I think you're totally right that that image of the revolution is built on those principles of humans just being kind of yeah. greedy and chaotic. It's driven by the media false narratives as well, like in yeah. pop culture and shit. It's made to look like, like, let's draw it to the case study of the, uh, the Minnesota riots. Yep. What is the rioting like? There's been a lot of buildings that have been destroyed and burned. There have been a lot of places looted. Yeah. Um, and when this narrative is presented... It's always in the form of kind of individual instigators, individual actors with individual agendas who are making use of a moment of disorder to benefit themselves rather than it being this is an organized movement with a common goal that requires these places to be destroyed, these places to be taken. And it also like takes it out of context because yeah. these people are, have been driven to desperation like you know if they come from poverty they're co like coming in from covid where like their wages have been shut so yes. you, like the looting sure is looting bad in like i mean is it an immoral act we can set that aside yeah, but like we yeah. need to see the reasons that people are being driven to uh, yeah. looting right and those are like shitty things that are happening to no normal people like you and i yeah I think we can talk about the logistics of a revolution. Of a revolution. And um, what a revolution might look like. Yeah. Because I think it's There's a, a couple little... different ways. Yeah. I think the primary distinction in the left, at least from how I've seen it, is you have the more kind of, like, I guess, communist idea of a revolution being, it's a lot more organized. It's a lot more metho uh, meth Met methodological, <laughs> methodical. Um, is that a word? Probably. Okay. It, English is bullshit, so it doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, fuck English. It's we'll a lot more methodical. It's a lot more structured, and it's got a, it's got some form of leader. It's got some form of leading doctrine, some leading ideology behind it. You have some Lenin or some Mao figure, and may, that might not be an individual. That might be a group. That might be a party. That might be yeah. Um, that might be BLM, like as an a organization. Vanguard. And the other, the distinct form of revolution is the anarchist revolution. Wait, before we get into that one, can yeah. I just say why I don't think the one you, that you just de described isn't good? Yeah. It's because it's inherently, it, it comes in through a power structure. There's a strict hierarchy in that process of a revolution, right? Yeah. yeah like yeah. if there's a vanguard party or if there's a Mao or a Lenin, the people are inherently sort of bowing down before that institution or that group or that person. Mm -hmm. And essentially you're giving away some sort of your power into that organization. Yeah. And so like, although this would be a revolution because it changes the status quo as it stands right now, mm -hmm. we run the risk of establishing a new status quo where this new group or new uh, group of people, right? They come together and they hoard all the power. Yeah. And the power comes from the people, right? Yeah, but they but, choose to give it up uh, for the vanguard. Yeah, for the vanguard. And I think, like, because if you look at the last century, like the, the 20th century, those are the most common forms of revolution that have worked and led to a complete change of state. Yeah. You look at the Soviet Union, you look at China under Mao. That's what capitalists and liberals and, like, the status quo does right now. They point at those revolutions and they think, oh, it's failed. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, socialism canceled. The USSR yeah, yeah, yeah. collapsed. Uh, USSR collapsed. has ended and all that. Yeah. So many people died in the famine or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I think the reason those things were so big and so apparent is because they are probably the most effective way of doing a revolution. In that you have everybody mobilized. Your aims and your goals are clear. 
You yeah. know, there's no confusion about what you're fighting for. With an anarchist revolution, on the other hand, which is completely grassroots, organic, it's a moment more than an event. It's not organized or structured. It just occurs. The Those, principles are dictated by the people. Yeah. There is, like, you don't go into it with a plan. There's no organizational structure. And that might sound a little chaotic, mm -hmm. but, like, I think it's beautiful because it's the people dictating the terms as they go because yeah. they have the power. And it's so consent-based that whatever you want, whatever they want, they get to decide. Yeah. It's a fundamental restructuring of society in that regard. I, I believe that the anarchist revolution is less effective than a, a Soviet or communist style of revolution. It's difficult. It's harder. It's very much more difficult. It relies on solidarity. It relies on people who are not affected by whatever issues is causing the moment to say, this is not affecting me, but I cannot live in a world where it is affecting you. Um, so I want to change it for you. I want to change it with and you. And also, like, solidarity comes from the acknowledgement that the same system who's oppressing all of us, yeah. even though our struggles are different, our experiences are different. Yes, 100%. The danger when it comes to an anarchist style of revolution is that it's really up to anyone to claim ownership of it. And that's when we need to stop, like, call them out. Yeah. Because no one can own like a revolution, a re an anarchist a re revolution. An anarchist revolution. Yeah. And I think it's uh, like good, uh, a good time to just explain what the principles of anarchism are and what we mean by anarchism. Yeah. Because I think a lot of people have just been like seeing the, the current narrative in, in America where like Trump is demonizing Antifa, yeah. liberals are, de demonizing, de are demonizing uh, the anarchists. And there's just a lot of misunderstanding of what anarchism is. Yes. And like, yeah, they're being labeled as leftist radical terrorists. And that's just so off. Anarchism, by definition, by the actual term, anarchy, is like a theism. It's, a, it's to say a rejection of hierarchy. It comes from anti-monarchy, like a monarchy, anarchy. Oh, okay. Um, so it's to say I reject the crown, I reject your hierarchy over me. Anarchism is a, the belief that we should live in a political structure that has no, or I guess to live with no political structure. Um, there should or at be least no coercive political No structure. coercive, uh, non-consensual hierarchy, hierarchies should exist and power should be decentralized as much as possible to the individual level. And then from that point on, there's a lot of different flavors of anarchy. But like, those are all deviations of the core principle yeah. that we oppose um, oppress oppression. Uh, we're going to oppose non-consensual uh, non hierarchies everywhere. Wherever they stand. Yeah. Yeah. And this star, star, like this includes like that McDonald's worker who's being yelled at by like his manager who's being yelled by his manager because that like yeah. it's all like even in corporate culture there are uh, there are hierarchies. Even in university there are hierarchies. Yeah. In like every aspect of life there are hierarchies. In personal and relationships there tend to be hierarchies. Yeah. Um it, like the patriarchy, yeah. right, is an example of how hierarchy is enforced within the gender structure yeah um anarchism is just about re like rejecting all of that yes it's about reclaiming the power that is rightfully yours and saying fuck you to the power structures and the oppression that exists right now and gives you the opportunity to re rebuild yeah all of that. that's the most important part i think a lot of people understand anarchy as the rejection of all the structure and so after revolution it's a free-for-all but the, re the rebuilding is the most important part because that's, to me, the, the primary point of anarchy is let us choose how we choose to live. And I think anarchism, more than just being a political philosophy, it's, yeah. it's an action that you do. It's yes, an yeah. action that you take to get to the society that you want to be making. You live anarchistically. You live anarchistically. Like, I think, because I think of my own politics, right? And how I think about the world and the political actions and the things that I'm involved in myself. And all of these are motivated by my principles, like my fundamentally anarchist principles, of course, but also I use these principles to guide me towards my understanding of utopia and what I want society to look like eventually. Yes. I know that and what I mean by utopia is like my ideal society, the one that I know is never happening, but I will do my politics and I'll do everything in my capacity to make this society just look like that society a yeah, little yeah. bit more. It's super important, I think, that we build our own... And we talked about this a little bit earlier in, I think, episode three, maybe. Uh, it's super important for everyone to have a, an image of what their utopia looks like, just to the best of their knowledge, just however they understand the world to be, form that image. 
Because if you prescribe to a prepackaged image, I find that to be super harmful. And I, I want to pull that into the context of the revolution, or not the revolution, but the uprising yeah. in the States, in that there's a Why lot of different people... Why are you engaging in the uprisings, right? I think that's the question... That well, comes in. Um, yeah, like why are people engaging in it? And I want to talk about like how people have, how the socialists have claimed ownership over it and how liberals have claimed ownership over it and how they both have incredibly shallow takes on what is actually occurring at the moment and why anarchism is really the only answer to what is this current moment, right? Yeah. Because from a socialist perspective, this is purely um, a fight against capitalism. This isn't anything beyond the class struggle. It's this all is just class. the class it's struggle. working class versus the ruling class, yeah. the bourgeois class. And to a certain extent, uh, I think there's merit in that, right? Um, I'll talk briefly about All Lives Matter. I see a lot of people in socials talking about how when people are talking about All Lives Matter, it's like comparing um, all the houses in a street to the one house that is on fire. You know, it's, it's the idea of this isn't affecting you right now, it's affecting us, so let us have this moment. Which is a completely valid criticism, but I feel like it doesn't really acknowledge what the strongest version of the All Lives Matter argument is. And I think it's important that we do deal with it on the strongest level, because a lot of people will hear those comments and be like, oh, you don't actually understand what we're talking about, I refuse to give you any credibility. Yeah. I'm not going to listen to your point of view. You strawman the argument. Yeah, we're strawmanning it, but we need to steelman the argument. I'd give it at its strongest form. And the form of the argument, that the strongest form of the All Lives Matter argument is that black people are not the only people who are being brutalized by police. It really is a class thing where white people are also being brutalized by police, not nearly to the same extent, but it's also occurring within white communities. Yeah. So that to me is the strongest form of the All Lives Matter argument. The reply to that should be, yes, it's true. This is very much a class struggle, but there's an intersection. And at that intersection of race and class, Black people and black poor people are significantly more marginalized by police than white poor people or white people in general. Um, the intersectionality is the crucial, um, I think, analysis that we need to be drawing into it. Yeah. And I think that leftism as a discipline often struggles with that. And I think it all goes back to Marx because he was very class reductionary. Explain he, what class reductionary means. Okay. Um, so class reductionary means that you pinpoint or like just being reductionary yeah means that you pinpoint a certain issue and draw your entire analysis of the topic based on that issue yeah so if you're being class reductionary it means that you draw your analysis on of society purely on class terms and you don't have room for other nuances like gender sexuality race um geography and all that yeah right so like when i say marx was class reductionary I mean, I'm being reductionary of Mar Marx in yep. that regard, but also what I mean by that is that um, that Marx's analysis was fundamentally based off of his understanding of class and how class relations determined societal relations. Yep. And that is problematic because, well, first of all, Marx was a white man writing in England um, in the 19th century, he's, he was coming in from a place of, place of privilege and he did not extend his analysis for women and people of color. Yeah. So fundamentally problematic. And also um, the intersectionality is super important yes. because the experiences of a white man and a black queer woman of color is fundamentally different. Yeah. Even if like the white working class man is being oppressed by the same system as the woman, in this case, but their whole lives and their the levels of oppression that they're going to be experiencing are different. Yeah. So when we criticize society and when we look at society and the problems that are there right now, we need to have an intersectional critique and the interdimensional understanding of how the problems affect different people differently. Yep. We're talking about the utopia, right? Yeah, utopias, right? The socialist utopia is, if, uh, is in my opinion, a very class reductionary form of a utopia where we take back power from the wealthy, we control the means of production. Yeah. Yeah, so my issue with those utopias are that I, I think that they are too class reductionary. And there have pe been people who, who have written about like intersectional socialism and like having a utopia which is socialist, but also focuses on, on the racial dimension and the queer dimension and the religious dimension and what other, whatever other dimensions um, they wanted to write about. Yeah. The issue with the liberal utopia is that it is way too like race, race reductionist yeah, yeah. 
and you see these liberals being out like, oh, this is because like we had four years of Trump. We were going completely normal. Everything was fine until Trump got elected in 2016. And now we live in this racial hellscape. We need the Dems back in power so that they, you know, things go back to normal. And like, I guess maybe that's, that's kind of a bit straw many of the liberals because even beyond that, even just focusing on it being like, we need to have stronger regulations on police about race. We need to have more black people in positions of power. Um, these are things that are more than just like, we need to get the Dems elected. Like these are goals for liberals. Yeah. But even then, if you have a complete racial representation in your, in your positions of power, in the police, outside the police, in, in administration and whatever, it, 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 it will never acknowledge the class dimension of it. Because the, to change the class dimension is to fundamentally get rid of capitalism. Um, yeah. You'll, you'll still have an overrepresentation of black people in poverty than white people solely because the history is not being and addressed. even if you don't have that, even if you like tackle the race element of it and say hypothetically racism isn't a thing anymore, yeah. the class distinction still remains. We yeah. will still have poverty. And I think that's just fucked. Because so, like so much of liberal politics is on like being going out of your way and doing shit and like working for like go do charity or like yeah, yeah, go yeah. like do social work and NGOs and shit. So like those things are like there's so much of a band aid solution to the problems yes. instead of t talking about like just getting rid of poverty. You're talking about how oh we should get get them a microfinanced loan so they can buy a cow. Yeah, and, yeah. Like, or, and so it's it's just a bullshit argument. Um, and I am being reductionary of liberals, of course, but I think like we, if you look at their core values, you can see how that this and that makes a connection. Yeah, there's only so much you can do under a liberal revolution. Under a liberal, I mean, a liberal revolution itself is is kind of a historical what concept. The, like the liberal revolution right now that we're seeing, and we're at the cusp of it, is just a, re a revival of the Obama era. Like it's literally. Yeah, they want to make America great again. Yeah, when it, it was in 2015. Yeah, it's just and it's just so bizarre that it's like rather than being a progressive measure, it's an actively regressive measure. Yeah, because we're going back to 2008. Biden was Obama's vice president. Yeah, when you elect a vice president into office, you're enforcing the um the regime that he was a part of. Yeah, right. It's so, an administrative family. Yeah, uh, these administrations they are very incestuous. They they know the people that they trust. So the people we're going to get in will be very similar to the people we had during the Obama administration. And this is just a f problem with Democrats. And like not to deviate too far from our uh, revolution discussion. Yeah. Um, but fuck the Democrats. Fuck the Democrats. Um, but like, in, like you see they're, like, they're just so unwilling to embrace change because they're, they keep on endorsing the same people over and over again. And but what I mean by that is like you had eight years of Bill Clinton in the 90s, right? Yeah. And what does he do instead of going forward? He endorses Al Gore, who was mm -hmm. his vice president and part of his regime. So yeah. there's like he wasn't gonna make things better. He was just gonna do the keep system. it keep it going. And how does like society react? We get Bush elected. Yeah, getting Bush elected is a reaction of society of rejection of the status quo. Yeah. Similarly, with Trump's election, right? With Ob Obama, we got Hillary, who was part of his administration, who mm -hmm. believed in the same things that Obama did, and by rejecting Hillary. The people were actually just rejecting the status quo as it stands. Yeah. The problem was like the alternative was fucking Trump because um, the American bipolar, the bipolar, the bipolarity that's there in America right now is just that bad. Yeah. I went on a bit of a Democrat rant. But no, I think that's totally fair. The Democrats deserve a lot of detest. Yeah. Um, when you see how performative they've been around these race issues, they they, they haven't acknowledged anything about <laughs> them kneeling. The, the kneeling, the them wearing the scarves, they, you know, they, they did like a vigil to George Floyd. They're renaming one street per borough in New York, Black Lives Matter Street. Like, these are very nice kind of, I want to say, feel cute, good. Like, they're warm uh, changes. Will they achieve anything of value? Will a racist driving down Black Lives Matter Street say, fuck, I was wrong. Black lives do matter. <laughs> I don't think so. Will it turn people away? Probably. Yeah. If people have it. The truth is no one likes things shoved down their throat. We, we actively turn away our allies by putting too much pressure on them, I think. I feel like activism doesn't come from... I feel like knowledge doesn't come as a part of activism. Activism comes out of knowledge and kind of putting people on their own and saying like, here's the big picture. Black lives matter. Black lives matter. But there's no nuance for you. 
Go find the nuance on your own. It means you're just leaving them to fend for themselves with all the conservatives, all the liberals who are trying to like bastardize what these meanings are, what the point is. Yeah. So that there really is no meaning anymore behind the, the phrase Black Lives Matter because anyone can say it. Anyone can utter and it. And when the corporations start incorporating it as well in their marketing slogans, yeah. you know that that's fucked. Like, you know that that's where the movement is dead. Yeah. Like, because they're part of the ruling elite and who are benefiting from the system as it stands. Like, and they, now, they, like, even they're endorsing BLM. So, like, the integrity of the movement sort of just dies with that. Yeah. That's why things need to be a lot more about, less about building coalition, because I feel like we've done it. We've, we've done the, the coalition building. If you don't have solidarity now, I don't know when you're going to get it. Yeah. But we have the people now. So now it's about organizing in a way that allows us to be direct and disruptive and cause some actual havoc for the system as it exists. Yeah. Because how else do you make your demands? How else do you, and more importantly, how else do you make your demands? Because that's a very liberal thing is like revolution to make demands. An anarchist revolution does not make demands. They take. And then yeah. they do the, they control. Um, I think that's a very important distinction to be making. That when it's an anarchist revolution, you're taking what's rightfully yours. That yeah. is the means of governance, the means of like setting society. It's yours. Yeah. Go out there and take it. Whereas a liberal revolution or even some of the socialist revolutions would more be like, oh, we're going to incorporate the means of governance for our own benefit and try to restructure it from there. Yeah. So in a way, you're still working from within the cusp of the system and you're not being like radical in the sense that you're not willing to shake up the foundations of it. Yeah. So let's talk about an anarchist revolution a little bit more. Like, how do we see it happening? How do we enact these principles in real life? Well, I would say we've already kind of seen it happen. Uh, and I'll, I want to, we talked a bit about Chaz earlier, yeah. the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone. And to me, I think that's exactly what a, an anarchist revolution looks like, where people reclaim territory from the state, and with whatever resources that are left within the territory, they reorganize. So now you have all these communal areas in the, in the Capitol Hill zone, communal cafes, communal, like, I guess, distribution centers, maybe, yeah. where they're just giving out water and coffee and granola bars. They have farming, they have art everywhere. They have a lot of music. They've said no cops in here, no state in here. We are running this autonomously now, and they've turned it into a thing of beauty, yeah. where everyone is working together to live together peacefully. And above that as well, they are teaching. They are learning about decolonization in jazz. Yeah, you know, they're learning about race in jazz in ways they've never thought they would learn about before. To me, that's what an anarchist revolution looks like: is a reclamation of territory and the redistribution of things to reorganize in your image. Hmm. I um, think I disagree with that a little bit. Okay. Um, because I don't think that's what the revolution looks like. I think that's what the utopia looks like. And yeah. like the problem with like mixing both of them is that I don't think Chaz or setting up more Chazes um, is gonna like be our revolution. Yeah. Because like what you're doing in Chaz is that you're essentially existing with the consent of the state. Yeah. Right? Like we like when it first came up, like two weeks ago was it? Um, yeah, it's been it's been, yeah, maybe it's been a little two weird, weeks. but like say two weeks ago when it came up, well, there was uh, we were talking about it and we were talking about how oh like this isn't gonna go on for much no. longer, and even be because we knew that the police were gonna take it back or like yeah, the national yeah. guard will be deployed at any moment, and I think every rational person out there knows for a fact that like if the state if the government wants to clamp down on Chaz and shut it down, they, they can. can. They can. Like they have, so like essentially they're existing at the consent of the state. Yeah. How is that revolutionary? All right, look, I don't think Chaz is the ideal, but I think the methods behind Chaz are what revolutionary methods should look like. What okay. we should hope for is a bigger Chaz, where they are focusing on growth and reclamation of territory and spread. And maybe if there are more chazzes and they all work together and they spread like a virus. Like a, like a federation of chazzes. And I completely agree that the chazzes as it exists now is only doing so with the consent of the state. If they asked, the police would be sent in, the military would be sent in. Potentially everyone inside would be wiped out. Yeah. Um, and the that could totally happen. can do that. Yeah, and it would all go back to normal. Uh, I totally agree that that would probably be the outcome of what currently exists in chaz. Is this the revolution? No. The moment that we live in now I'm going to say I don't think so. Yeah. But what I think will be achieved out of this will be some form of weakening of the state apparatus. There will be some form of restriction on what the police are capable of doing, some restriction on the violence that the state's capable of doing, and it won't be substantial enough to change the world that we live in. 
but it means it will be substantial enough to reduce the, the pushback when the revolution does occur. Everything we can do now, and this is like my way of like uh, mixing revolution and reform, yeah. is that you have these micro-revolutions like what's happening now, and you use them to weaken the ability of the state to prevent you from revolting by reducing their police power, taking away their guns maybe. Yeah. Whatever you can do to Arming weaken yourself. their... Well, yeah, if you can increase your right to be armed, um, everyone in Chaz should own a gun. Um, like, truly, if they yeah. don't, then they are, they're they really missing the point of what they're up to. Dude, Fox News, listening to our podcast, would have a heyday. Yeah, um, I just want to make it clear, uh, we're not paid by Antifa um, <laughs> or George Soros. Well, uh, this, we're not recording from um, Antifa headquarters in Ant- Melbourne. Antifa HQ, Melbourne. Um, We're recording from Stolen Land. Yep, I've never met Mr. Antifa. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, no, but they should be armed. They should be ready for conflict. If this was the revolution, there would be conflict. There would be no consent from the state. Whew. There, there, there would have to be warfare. Um, effectively, I'd say it looks a bit like a civil war. Um, but that's scary, though. Like, yeah, it's scary, but I don't think it's any scarier than continuing with the way things have currently been going. Yeah. Um, if you want to achieve any real change without violence, personally, I would say grow up. Um, <laughs> there has been nothing achieved by pacifism apart from assassination. Martin Luther King was path- a pacifist and he was assassinated for it. Where did the real Gandhi change come from? Pacifist, he was assassinated. Where did the change come from in these movements? Was that there were violent and disruptive counterparts to the peaceful organizations and they were the ones disrupting and making demands. That, when you have both of those things, where you have a peaceful uh, demonstration and that is kind of backed up by a more violent, disruptive group, the peaceful demonstration is more effective. Because what you're saying is, if you don't listen to me, you have to listen to those guys. And those guys will fuck you up. Um, so you, yeah. you better take me seriously. So, like, if you, ever, if you want to achieve anything and your one limit is whatever happens, no matter what, no violence, you will never achieve anything. You've restricted yourself... And you're also completely ignorant of the fact that there's always violence. Yeah. I think two things. First, that if we have a reformist approach, right? Like where we do pro- peaceful protests and the state smiles down upon us and like stops being racist or like grants us rights. Right. That is, you're working, like that's a minor concession on part of the ruling class. And they'll only do that when they know for a fact that, okay, this will placate the masses and prevent a revolution, yeah. which is gonna fuck up, fuck things up for us. Because and like you know, so you make a concession, um, so you don't have to. So like they don't pull out the guillotines. And yeah. They don't have a revolution. So these concessions, so rather than actually serving to change the power structure, they're actually maintaining it in yeah. a way. That because you're just like subduing that revolutionary spirit. Now the second thing on violence is that. The state is inherently violent. We yeah. live in a fundamentally violent state. And like, it's just bizarre because you hear people say, oh, there's no place for politics in violence. Dude, grow up. Politics yeah. is built off of violence. The whole act of politics is done to gain like monopoly on the violence, violence and yeah. like just to have legitimacy on your authority to enact violence. Yeah. So if you think that politics isn't violent, you've just given in to the ruling class propaganda and you're not like, you don't critically think at all. Yeah, you're being ignorant about the world yeah. that we live in. And like, even right now, like there's violence in the form of the police, there's violence in the form of economic violence as well. It's just violence has taken up so much nuanced um, approaches that yeah. like it's sort of muddled. And because it's all legitimate and happens under the rule of law, like what if we have shitty laws? Yeah. What are we meant to do about that? Yeah. If Trump tomorrow legalizes lynchings again, like, not that he's done in the past, but if, if yeah, lynchings if he does, the police normal, state will have to uphold that. Yeah. And what are the people, how, how do you expect to deal with that without violence? You know? Um, so I think like, yeah, there needs to be a more grown up way of talking about violence instead of just writing but it off. But also then like, I think... Also, like, you talk about terrorism right next to it as well. Because yes, terrorism, yeah, yeah. and you see, you, you can talk about ISIS or the Ku Klux Klan and everything. Because when people think of violence, they think of that. Yeah. Right? That's the, the political approach to violence that you think. And yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Like, if you're motivated by hate, that's, like, fucked up. 
right? And I think we need to be able to make an adult distinction between ISIS or the Ku Klux Klan and the violence in the form of reclaiming authority. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I do, I completely agree that violence on individuals should be completely minimized and reduced wherever possible. 100%. Like, it should never be about going after one person or one individual. Violence against the state should always be allowed. Like, that is the fundamental that, difference that's between the basis us and the of KKK. The right to bears, bear arms in yeah. the American uh, Constitution. If the state can be violent on you, you should be violent on the state. And as like, long as individuals agree not to be violent with each other, we shouldn't need to be violent with each other. So, like, I think that's the distinction between, like, us and the KKK and ISIS and whatever. They are, I mean, I guess the KKK We are, are not more, ISIS. Yeah, we're not ISIS. We're not the KKK. Um, but the KKK is particularly about going after individuals um, for their own, like, uh, for their sins of being black or Jewish or whatever. Yeah. Um, we are effectively saying we don't want to hurt any individuals. We want to solely go after the state, its property, its functionality. Um, and that's a very different kind of violence, but it's still yeah. violence. We need to like... And violence doesn't necessarily mean Molotov cocktails and balaclavas and blowing up the parliament. Yeah. Right? Violence can, like, even demonstrations can be violent in the way they enact speech. Speeches yeah. can be inherently violent if, you, if they're uh, motivating agitation and mobilization. I think we need to reclaim the definition of violence. Yeah. Um, so we've been talking about all, revolution and all. And we understand that society is bad and things need to change. Yeah. And that begs the question of whether or not we're ready for a revolution. Yeah. What do you reckon? Are we ready for... Uh, I guess we need to define like what we'll need to be ready. Yeah. Really, the only thing we need for a revolution is the manpower. You just need people. Effectively, if you have enough people, like that's the whole, like the most basic theory of it is we have the more, we have more power. So fundamentally we need the people and when we have the people we'll be ready for it yeah okay um but to be a bit more nuanced about it like we need to weaken the state a little bit more i think before we're ready for the revolution okay. and i think this will be very fundamental in doing that we need to redefine what we mean by policing we need to defund the police and focus on our social and com uh, communal responsibilities to each other um we need to arm more citizens i think that's a big thing i think people I think we need to be serious about guns. Uh, I think people are, especially like more left-leaning liberal people, are pretty much on the entire political spectrum. It's only like the left liberal people who are anti-gun. Everyone else is pro-gun on the political yeah, spectrum. Yeah, yeah. Like you see the memes. Yeah, and it's true. Like, I think we need to be more honest about the role of firearms going forward because you need to have some capability of defending yourself if some form of violence was to occur. Yeah. What else do you think we need for a revolution? I think, for me, the purpose of the revolution is important. Yep. So, like, why are we enacting a revolution? Are we enacting a revolution because we think that after it, we will have utopia? Because I'm, like, when I think of history and when I think of pro progression of history, I'm a Marxist in that regard because I think the economic means mm -hmm. and all and like the cap the technological cap capabilities is what defines society yeah. and what defines societal progress I, in that regard like that materialist understanding really indicates that we're at the cusp of a revolution yeah. because we're experiencing a revolution right now in technology through ai and through automation and all that yeah. the economic mode of production is fundamental the base of production is fundamentally about to transform yeah and when that happens when we have robots who can do everything for us what is the role of labor i think uh, why would we need labor so as we approach that society i think the feasibility and like the readiness of society gets like closer and closer to a revolution yeah okay and i so because i'm a bit of I guess I'm a little naive in that regard when I think it a revolution is as is an inevitability. Yeah. That when society is in that level where the base of production and the superstructures around it, and I mean I'm not going to get into definitions over here. Yeah. yeah. Um, but like when there's a, a difference between how things are, how society is and how society could be, change happens. Revolution happens. That has always been the case through history. Yep. So I think we are at the cusp of it. But we need to be careful of what kind of revolution we have. Yes, we need to make sure no one tries to claim ownership over anything. We need to be clear in our goals and our vision. I see the revolution like people see rapture. I think it's 
it's one of those things that could be around the corner. It could be 200 years from now. Yeah. Uh, but w it, it will happen. And when it does happen, we need to be ready for it. And um, these revolutionary acts, yeah. let's call it that, right? Like BLM and like uh, tr overthrowing statues and this mobilization of the free people. Yeah. These all bring us co closer towards the revolution, which brings us closer to the utopia that we want. Of course. And so that's why it's so important to be doing that. And that's why even the norms that are, have been changing through the performative uh, social media posting and like virtue signaling that's been going on, even those... Are, I'm not going to say that they're revolutionary acts, but they have an act to play because they're changing our norms. Yes. They're progressing society towards the right direction. Well, that was a um, another really good discussion. A revolutionary one, if I may say so. <laughs> Before we wrap up, I just want to uh, acknowledge that we are recording on the stolen land of the Wurundjeri people. Uh, sovereignty was never ceded. So I want to pay my respects to elders past, present, and future and the people who are still here to this day. Thank you for allowing us on your land. Sovereignty was never ceded. Yeah, sovereignty was never ceded. And that's a really important thing to remember. And know whose land you're on. Go out of your way to research the people whose land you're standing on. And yeah, it takes one Google search to do. Yeah. And yeah. I think it's, I mean, Melbourne isn't really Melbourne. It's NARM. And yeah. like the, the whole history of it is just like it's standing on a system of inherent oppression. I mean, that it wraps us back to the violence thing. Just one, like just quickly before we wrap up. Yeah. Like the whole point of sovereignty was never ceded is is that this is the land of the Wurundjeri people. The only reason they don't have the say over this land is because if they tried to behave in a way that they did, the state could wipe them out or arrest yeah. them. The fact that so sovereignty wasn't ceded means that it was taken. Yeah. And how was it taken? Through violence. Through violence. And it's maintained through violence. Um, and these are, yeah. So take some time and, and educate yourself on the land that you're on, especially if you're here in Australia and wherever yeah. you might be in the world. Um, and with that, uh, I want to say thank you, Ray. Thanks, Mo. This uh, is a good thank one. you to our listeners. Um, Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. At the Azad Project. Potentially TikTok. I don't know. We'll see. We'll figure it out. <laughs> um, yeah. And send us any comments to our Facebook page. If you want to let us know topics you want us to discuss or anything you want us to go into more detail about. If we might have gone over very quickly. Um, yep. Other than that, all good. Thank you, guys. This was the Azad Project. Marx's analysis was fundamentally based